forgiveness is what you do for yourself, not what you do for others. Calling in is what you do for yourself, not what you do for your others, so that you can walk through the world being the best person you can be. Because that's really the only thing you have control over, who you are. These are not hard things to learn. I'm just bringing forth the wisdom of the ancestors. Like Reverend Lowry said, I'm teaching people how to turn to each other instead of on each other. I'm saying, okay, if somebody says this to you, take a deep breath, and this is some of the things you can say. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Tell me more. You don't have to agree with somebody to listen to them. But we think that because we disagree with something somebody says, that we're supposed to pounce. We're supposed to show up what we like and who we are and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's our ego talking. That's not our strategy talking. And, and I'm, I'm thinking we can do better. Matter of fact, I know we can do better. We have lessons from our past we can learn. And, and I know we have the hope of the future that we can participate in. doing Breakline family. My name is Kenny Vaughn. I'm the director of Breakline Apex. And first and foremost, I just want to thank everyone for making the time to join us for what I have no doubt is going to be a life-changing conversation. We have the distinct honor and privilege of what I would consider a national treasure a living legend, a lifelong activist in Professor Loretta Ross. Now, for those of y'all who hadn't had the chance to check out her bio, I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but what I will tell you is that we are here in the presence of brilliance. We are here in the presence of beauty, greatness, and radical activism. And so as part of this conversation, we will discuss some of her more recent work surrounding calling in the call-out culture. We're absolutely gonna talk about that. We'd love to take a deep dive there. But before we do, I would love to just take it a little bit further back. And the reason that I want to is because I think it's so important to see the series, the chain of life events, which has led Professor Ross into this space uh, so on that note, Loretta, how are you doing today? Thank you so much for making the time to join us here with the Breakline family. I am having a great day. It's busy because I work seven days a week pretty nonstop. But I'm privileged to only do the work I love to do. So every day just feels like me becoming more rather than the pursuit of money or hanging out with people I don't want to talk to and stuff like that. That's mm. pretty good for, for a senior citizen. When you know why you're alive and you're having a ball being alive, it doesn't get much better than that. Mm. The gift of becoming. And what I will tell you is 
because of the way that you are judicious with your time, it makes even more special that you've chosen to spend some of it with us here at Breakline. So what I would love if it's okay with you is if you could take us back because we've got three communities that are represented within our Breakline family. We've got our veterans, uh, we've got our mavens, which are women who are transitioning into the industry. And we've also got Apex, which is people of color. And as I was reading about your background, I actually saw that your father was from Jamaica and was a military service member. And so would love to hear any early memories that you have just growing up, coming from that background and any stories that you'd love to share with us there. Okay. Well, as you said, my father was from Jamaica. Back after World War I, the U.S. needed laborers. And so they expanded the immigration possibilities from English-speaking people from the Caribbean because they had this labor shortage. So my father was six years old when he came to the country with his brothers and sisters, but his parents didn't get a visa. And so he was brought over here by a couple, a childless couple who did get the visas. And so at the age of six, my dad lost contact with his own parents, which had to be very traumatic for him. But still the Dunmoody's, the couple were basically grandparents to all of us. And because he was a, a high school dropout, in the 1930s, he joined the army, probably lying about his age. I think he was underage, but he joined it anyway and stayed in the army for 26 years. And so I'm a military brat, one of eight kids, basically raised in the military. And mom was a Southern evangelical Christian woman from Texas. They met at Fort Hood, Texas. <laughs> uh, I was born in Temple, Texas as a result. And so I feel very rural, very Southern, but also very Jamaican. <laughs> That's what we call ourselves, that blended diasporic identity where you care as much about what happens around the world as you care about what happens in the US. And so I'm privileged to have very deep roots. My mother's family can trace their lineage back to 1844, which is very unusual for an enslaved family to have that deep knowledge of our family and our roots. So I never wondered who my people were. I was raised amongst my people and those traditions and things. They're as I said, I'm one of eight kids. I was number six kids. So I was buried in the middle of the pack, always trying to find my voice. And on top of that, there were three girls and I was the middle girl. So I was like <laughs> in the middle, in the middle, in the middle kind of thing. We moved around a lot as a military family, uh, every six to 18 months sometimes. And so I went through first grade in three different states. Texas, Oklahoma, and California. And a lot of people think that that's a problematic childhood, but I actually thought it was a great one, particularly looking back 70 years later, because that let me learn how to handle risk, how to 
handle constantly meeting new people, how to adjust the different environments and change. And I, of course I had the advantage of the family stability, but still always the new kid on the block, always adjusting to different educational systems and paces, some military, some civilian, all of that. But I'll conclude this early life story with one that I think is important to our conversation today. I was eight years old before I heard the N-word ever. And I was playing with my best friend, Debbie, who was white, and I took her doll from her and she sashed it back. And so she called me the N-word because I didn't know what it was. I called her one back. <laughs> and then we just went on and kept playing, you know, cause we were kids. So at dinner that night, I asked my mom, I said, mom, what's the N-word? And mom went ballistic. Where did you hear that word? Ah. And of course I lied cause I didn't want to get Debbie in trouble. I was just like, yes, I just heard it. You know, kind of thing. The reason I'm telling you that story now, well, there's two. First of all, it, you don't help your children keeping them racially and sexually ignorant. I should have heard that from my parents, not from Debbie. Number one, that's, that's one story. But the larger story is because my father was in the military and he outranked everybody in our neighborhood. I grew up in predominantly white neighborhoods where the children were taught not to use that language because the sins of the children were visited on the fathers. So I know it's possible to raise children without that being what they hear and do and replicate. Yeah. And if we had that, you know, throughout our society, we'd raise racially literate children because as we all heard so many times, if a young black child at five years old has to endure white supremacy, then five-year-old white kids can be taught not to replicate it. And so I wanna bring that lesson from my childhood forward. And the whole time my father was in the military, that was the only time I had ever heard that word because there were consequences attached to the replication of white supremacy when your commanding officer is black. I appreciate you sharing your upbringing. You know, we had a chance to speak with Lieutenant General Vince Stewart around this time last year, and he's also a Jamaican-American immigrant. And he shared in his own story that while there is so much work for us to do in this country, America is the only place where his story was possible. And as I think about the responsibility that we have not only as parents, but as mentors, as leaders within our community for this next generation, what you just shared is so powerful because it's a reminder that we all have skin in the game, regardless of we're coming from a military background, regardless of the situation or the context, every single one of us has skin in the game and is helping shape the cultural norms for the generation that's coming behind us. So I appreciate you taking the time to give that additional context and flavor that you did, because I think it's a significant point for us to take away from this part of the conversation. A question that I wanted to ask you is, 
you have been a lifelong activist and a voice really for people who may otherwise not have had felt empowered to have a voice. And as I was researching your personal story, you've had to face some of the darkest parts of humanity. I wanted to ask you, what was it that gave you the courage to step into some of the challenging places that you stepped into? One of your first jobs was actually as the executive director of the DC Rape Crisis Center in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. What was it that gave you the courage to step into that space and say, I want to be a part of the solution? Well, again, it was family. When I was 14, my parents were very protective of me and they kept me both, as I said, racially ignorant, but most importantly, sexually ignorant. I didn't know anything about sex or anything. And so when I was 14, I had a cousin who was married, who was 27 years old and decided that plying me with alcohol was the best way for him to have sex with me, to manufacture consent. He was supposed to be babysitting me, not having sex with me. So my parents made the mistake that because, thinking that because he was a relative, that meant safety. And it wasn't. And so this was in 1968. Of course, I became pregnant. Abortion was not an option back then. And Melvin quickly left the country, my cousin, because he knew my dad would have killed him. <laughs> he abandoned his family and everybody just to get out of my daddy's reach. Since abortion wasn't an option, I ended up having that child. And my parents and I had agreed that we would give that child up for adoption because that was not how I wanted to become a mother through rape and incest at 14. I mean, really? And I gave birth in a Catholic hospital. We were in San Antonio, Texas at the time. And instead of whisking my son away the next day he was after, after he'd been born, those nurses inappropriately brought my son to me for nursing the next day. And I kept looking down at my child and saying, he's got my face, he's got my face. Oh shit, he's got my face. And I couldn't go through with the adoption. And in that moment, I went from being a very scared teenager to a mom. And it changed my life because I was in the 10th grade of high school, heading to college to major in chemistry and physics. And now I'm a teen mother trying not to let this early pregnancy sabotage my dreams. My high school didn't want to readmit me once they had proof that I'd had a baby because it was very common back then for girls to go to these homes for unwed mothers like I did, give the baby up for adoption and then pretend you were only on an extended vacation and you know ease back into teenage life. But I had proof that that was a lie because I had a baby. And so they didn't want to readmit me. And so my parents had to 
sue or threaten to sue the San Antonio Independent School System for my right to be admit, readmitted. And it didn't actually go to court, but I was talking to my guidance counselor who was arguing against my readmission. And she said, well, Loretta, if we let you in, other girls might get pregnant. And I looked at her at my 14 year old self and said, I haven't even taken biology yet. And I know that ain't how that works. <laughs> you know? I mean, excuse me. You're not expelling the boys that get the girls pregnant, just the girls. You know, how is that supposed to work? So anyway, we won it. But then they proceeded to punish me. Because I went to a predominantly white high school, one of three black kids in the AP class. And so then they wanted to make an example of me being an unruly Negro. And so they, they had low intensity harassment of me the rest of the time I was in school. I had started the girls drill team because they had one for the boys. They didn't have one for the girls. Then they told me I couldn't command my own drill team. They kicked me out of the honor society. They kicked me out of the science club, all because I'd had a baby. Had nothing to do with my academic qualifications, everything to do with them not wanting a black girl to show them up at this white high school. And so I couldn't wait to get out of high school. <laughs> I couldn't wait. It went from being a joy to being torture. And so fortunately, I got a full scholarship to Howard University and um, went there for three years, dropped out because parenting and majoring in chemistry and physics are not the easiest things to do at the same time. I made bad choices to be honest, because I was dealing with all this trauma and I was self-medicating. I became self-destructive. Self I was suicidal back then because I hadn't gotten any therapy for all that had happened to me. I hadn't gotten any help. And the only thing that kept me grounded was I had made the decision to keep my son and I kept thinking, well, I can't leave him now. <laughs> you know, because I decided this. And so just to make a long story short, I dropped out of Howard at 19. I went back to college at 48, Agnes Scott College, got a bachelor's degree at 55, and now I'm a tenured professor at Smith College. So, so you never quite know how your life is going to turn out, but it was that body of experiences that drew me to become a volunteer at the DC Rape Crisis Center. And it was at that Rape Crisis Center at 25 that I've found the language to attach to the experiences that I'd had. And it was there I started working on getting some therapy <laughs> to, to, to address the mess that was in my head because I was firmly convinced that I was not going to let my rapist determine my destiny in life. I was so determined to not have that. You know, me and my son just end up as another teen pregnancy statistic, you know? And so that's what drew me to the Rape Crisis Center. I learned how to tell my story first in small groups, then in larger groups, and then on jumbotrons at marches and things like that. On national TV to an audience of millions, I've learned over 
the last 50 years to own all the parts of myself and hopefully help other people understand how you may not have a straight path through life, but if you don't give up on yourself, you don't have to give up on your dreams. And I'll just say one other thing, because I talk a lot. When my mom sent me to college, she said something to me that was pretty important. I didn't realize at the time, but she had raised eight kids, like I said, and she could see each of us. And she was sending me off and she said, Loretta, one thing I admire about you is that you don't let success go to your head. And I interrupted her because I'm mouthy. I said, oh, my, I heard that. I read Reader's Digest like you read Reader's Digest. And she said, shut up. <laughs> let me finish. You don't let success go to your head. But most importantly, you don't let failure go to your heart. I want you to remember that about yourself. You don't let failure go to your heart. And so my mama read me before I even knew myself. And that's why I've been doing this work and telling my story for the better part of 50 years. Because I refuse to let failure go to my heart. I think I just want to first start by thanking you for having the courage and the vulnerability to open up your life for us in that way because you didn't have to do that. Also just quite frankly in awe by the tenacity and the, just the fierce nature of your spirit to continue to move forward and to see how you were able to take these experiences that could potentially break a person and I'm thankful that you shared the evolution that it took to get you to where you are at this stage in life. You talked about the power of using your voice. And I think we're in this moment in history right now where there are so many different social movements taking place. We're in the midst of a global pandemic. We've got global warming. We're, we're, we're having this reckoning with the history of race in our country. And I think we're at this point now where there are so many people that are ready to use their voice. And so for you, as someone who has used your voice as a activist for so long, you, you led one of the nation's largest marches for reproductive rights. And so you've been in these spaces. This is not something that is new to you. What's your word of encouragement for those of us who are trying to step into the fullness of our voice and our purpose? Well, a wise woman, and that's the other thing that's been my sustainability strategy. I surround myself by some pretty smart ass people. And I listen Come to on them. Come on now. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. If, if I didn't have the capacity and the privilege of having elders who didn't give up on me when I was mouthy and young and insufferable, if I didn't have people that taught me how to recover from huge mistakes, some of which ended up in the Washington Post, if I didn't have people who were behind me, the wind at my back pushing me forward, I never want to portray that anything I've achieved, I've achieved by myself. 
I don't believe in that great man, great woman, great leader, iconoclastic thing. We succeed because we are, <laughs> you know, to use that Ubuntu saying. And so what a really wise woman told me once when I was feeling very burnt out, we had just watched this movie called The 13th and it was about the 13th Amendment and stuff and I was feeling very down. And Deborah Small, who was a who is a prison abolitionist because she'd been incarcerated herself, said, Loretta, you really need to get perspective. You are not the entire chain of freedom. As a matter of fact, the chain of freedom extends way back from our ancestors and way forward for our descendants. So you need to focus. The thing you need to do is be the strongest link in the chain of freedom you can be. Don't let the chain break with you, but also don't assume that it's all about you, that it all rests on your shoulders, that you don't feel like you're good enough for the for the responsibility or the moment that you're in, because you're trying to do it all so fast with this urgency as if it's all gonna collapse unless you work yourself to death and anguish yourself to death. It ain't all about you. <laughs> it really is about just making sure the chain don't break at your length. And you are time enough for that because that's your job. And when she gave me that perspective, I felt like a ton had been lifted off of my back. That sense of urgency, that sense of feeling that I'm not enough, that sense of feeling that I have to do everything right and perfect or the whole thing will fall apart. All of that disappeared. And then I felt my ancestors and my descendants in that moment. And then the thing that like the indigenous people say, I want to be a good ancestor myself. That also came into play. I want my descendants to say, you know, my great, 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 great grandma, that's what she did kind of thing. And I'm lucky enough to live long enough to have a grandson who is, you know, the joy of my life. And uh, can my grandson attended my college graduation. <laughs> and my son and he were just as proud because they saw that their mom and grandma didn't give up on their dream, her dream. I was the oldest college graduate in my class, but it was the best moment was seeing my grandson in that audience. So what I will tell you as someone who is basking in your wisdom in your glory in this moment is job well done you have already met the mark and i'm telling you your link will not be the weak link in the chain i can tell you that right now as you talk about the importance of mentors and surrounding yourself with the wisdom of the village the wisdom of the tribe we lost two civil rights icons very recently, John Lewis, and on the same day, C.T. Vivian. And I know as part of your work with the Anti-Klan Network, 
CT Vivian was actually your mentor, your friend, and your, and your boss for a little while. Would love to hear just your thoughts on your experience being in the spaces with some of these pioneers, trailblazers, icons who have pushed the needle and pushed the conversation forward for this entire country as you're doing right now. Would love to hear any reflections that you have on those experiences. Well, in 1990, I took a job, my first job, as a matter of fact, in the civil rights movement. Because up until then, I'd only worked in the women's rights movement because I entered through the portal of anti-rape activism. And so I didn't know a lot about civil rights and I thought I was too young to have dealt with lunch counter discrimination or no colored signs. So I thought all the good stuff had happened before I was born. You know, I kind of like, I missed my moment kind of thing. But in 1990, I took a job with the National Anti-Klan Network, which was renamed the Center for Democratic Renewal. And Reverend Vivian and Ann Braden, uh, a white anti-racist acti activist from Kentucky, had co-founded CDR, or NACAN, because in 1979, five anti-Klan protesters were assassinated in Greensboro, North Carolina. And an all-white jury acquitted them twice, even though the murders were caught on videotape. And so Reverend Vivian took the position that we need an organization that monitors hate groups. We cannot count on the white community to protect us. We cannot count on law enforcement to protect us. We need a research and monitoring organization. And so that's where the National Anti-Klan Network was born. So I joined them uh, on staff in 1990. At first I was their program director. My job was to go to communities that experience hate groups or hate violence and help communities come up with effective responses to them. And that felt like really great soul rewarding work because whenever a hate group comes to town or a hate incident happens, you end up with three sets of people you end up with one set of people wanting to ignore them because they're convinced that if you give these clans, people or whoever the attention, that that's what they want. They want that attention. So there's a set of people who want to ignore them. Then there's another set, usually a much smaller set of people who want to fight them, the punch a Nazi strategy. <laughs> you know? And so... Generally speaking, they're young, they're usually male, and they're usually white that want to come together and duke it out with the Klansmen in this explosion of patriarchal, whatever they think they're doing. And what that ends up doing is giving the Klan what they want, because now they can come up with a narrative that they're the victims. That usually is be 200 anti-Klan people up against 12 Klansmen. So that fits into the media narrative that they were just exercising their free speech rights and these unruly anti-fascists came and attacked them. But then there was the third set of people. And this usually was the largest set who didn't want to ignore them like the first set, knew that that punch a Nazi strategy like the second set wants to do is not productive 
but they didn't know what to do. And so it became my job to work with them to help them develop effective counter strategies, teaches, prayers, meetings, educational programs for young people, solidarity actions, legal defense for the people who are likely to get arrested, those kinds of things. Organizing the business community, the religious community, the student community to figure out what to do. So I'm telling this kind of long story, but I'm trying to give you context. Take take your time. Take <laughs> your time. Um, what C.T. Vivian, or C.T. as he preferred that we call him, uh, was my boss for five years. So he used to come into the office quite frequently. He was our chair of our board of directors. And he said, when you ask people to give up hate, then you need to be there for them when they do. I mean, when I first heard those words, I did not have a good reaction. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I couldn't curse in front of a preacher, you know? But my attitude was that if the Klan hated me, I'm all right hating them back. That works for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? What, what more is there to say? But then my job changed. And one of the things that was added to my job was that we became like an informal underground railroad for people who were leaving hate movements. And people leave hate movements for a variety of reasons, most of which aren't really good reasons. Like they're good to them, but they're not. That doesn't make them immediately good people. That's what I'm saying. They're sometimes leaving because they're escaping criminal activity and they want to, don't want to get arrested with their criminal buddies. One guy left because his second son, he was in the Aryan nations and he left because his second son was born with a cleft palate, you know, with the lip that's up there. And his Aryan buddies told him that his son needed to be called. And that was like his wake up call that he'd been hanging around with a bunch of Nazis and the hate came home to his family. Another woman left because she didn't want to raise her child in, in the Ku Klux Klan. And she saw the incest and the domestic violence and all that was routine within this Appalachian Klan group that she, her husband was a part of. And so she wanted out and she wanted, mostly she wanted her children out. So there's a variety of reasons why people leave hate groups. But I'm saying all that to say, they became my job to help them following CD's vision that if pe when people leave hate groups, we need to be there for them when they do. And I found that once I got to know them, I couldn't hate them anymore. And that pissed me off, <laughs> really, because I'm like, I ain't Jesus. I ain't trying to turn the other cheek. You know, uh, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, because, I had to find another motivation for doing the work because for years I used anger as my fuel. And now I had to find another reason. And I'll just conclude the CT story because he also said so many things that changed my life. And I got to know John Lewis. And when you, when you do civil rights work in Atlanta, you get to know all the icons because they're your mentors. They're the people you're hanging out with when you're organizing around the Olympics or you know, dealing with hate violence throughout the South and stuff. So 
it was fairly routine for me to be in the presence of these civil rights icons that are legendary. And one of them, Reverend Lowry, by the way, gave me something that I use today. He used to talk about how the civil rights movement used to fight all the time behind closed doors, but they came out of those doors as a united front. And his famous saying was, we need to learn to we need to learn how to turn to each other instead of on each other. And I use that saying today, caring for the legacy of the civil rights people, because they understood that the mission was bigger than any of their egos. And that was really important. But back to another thing CT said that changed my life. When people left the hate movement, they often didn't know what to do with their lives. And when I said Underground Railroad, it was not a witness protection program because we didn't have the power of the FBI to give them that new identities or relocate them or anything like that. We weren't, you know, we were a nonprofit just trying to help people. And so generally it was just a matter of using a church network to get them to another town, to give them clothes, because sometimes they left in the middle of the night without any belongings and stuff like that to get away from the compounds or people with guns would be angry at them potentially betraying the group and stuff like that. And so one of the guys who left the area nations was named Floyd Cochran. He was the one whose son had been born with the cleft palate. And once Floyd left the Aryan Nations compound in Idaho, he asked me a very poignant question. He said, Loretta, where's the movement I can join now? And this was a very legitimate question for Floyd because Floyd knew the Bible inside and out. He was a gifted orator. He had this personal power that had recruited thousands of racist skinheads to the movement. So he had a calling and didn't know where to take it after he left the Aryan Nation. And so at first I kind of lamely said, well, Floyd, you can join the civil rights movement. What did I know? And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. He said, you think the civil rights movement is ready for an ex-Nazi? I said, uh, maybe not. <laughs> and I can't, you obviously can't join the women's movement because I know you're still sleeping around on your wife. I mean, I don't know, Floyd. Because <laughs> that's the experience I've had. So I took Floyd's question to Reverend Vivian, CT. And CT surprised the bejesus out of me. But he said, well, you know, Martin, and you know, he knew him well enough to say Martin, Martin, never meant to build a civil rights movement. He meant to build a human rights movement. And I was like, what you talking about? Kind of like the kid in the comedy, like, what you talking about? Wait a moment. Because if you're raised in the South, it's Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King civil rights leader like it's all one word. <laughs> you know, so what are you talking about? And he went to his library shelf and pulled out a copy of Dr. King's last Sunday sermon from March 31st, 1968, four days before he was assassinated. And I'm gonna paraphrase quickly. 
but he said something. He said, we're in the middle of a triple revolution, a revolution in weaponry with our ability to destroy the planet many times over, a revolution in communication with our ability to communicate anywhere on the planet. He said, but the most important revolution is that freedom explosion called human rights. And when I heard those words, it blew my mind because the first thing I blurted out was, everybody told me Dr. King had a dream. Nobody told me he had a plan that we're supposed to be building a human rights movement, bring human rights home to the United States because that has never been done before. That was the dream that that assassin's bullet, bullet killed. And so Reverend Vivian, a couple of years later after that conversation, he and I, uh, a Israeli-American woman named uh, Shulamith Kanik and a Sudanese Muslim named Abdullahi An-Nahim formed the National Center for Human Rights Education in 1996. And we spent the next decade distributing millions of copies of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights because people can't fight for rights they don't know they have. And so I always thought it was pretty funny that a Christian, a Muslim, a Jew, and an atheist came together to create this magic. <laughs> we did. And we're very proud that we did. And we created a culture shift. So instead of people just talking about civil rights, they're now talking about human rights. Where now healthcare is a human right, workers' rights is a human right, environmental justice is a human right, women's rights are human rights. None of this language existed in our social justice activism before CT pulled that book off that shelf and reminded us what we did not know, that Dr. King had a plan and it was our job to live it out. So that's a combination of the stories that got me here. I hope I answered your question. So <laughs> I'm just at a loss for words right now. And for those who know me, they know that's a very rare thing. <laughs> um, you told me not to use um, so I apologize. We, we talked about this in the pre-call. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as you were, as you were sharing is first and foremost, just the wisdom and the foresight of the leaders of the nonviolent movement. Also the story that you just shared with this underground railroad that I had never heard of in the history that has been overlooked and hasn't been taught in the classroom. It's just mind blowing to me to see the courage, the wisdom, and the foresight that you had to have in that moment to have grace. And I love your definition of grace. I wrote it down earlier. Your definition of grace is when you can see the humanity of someone who has wounded you and build a container that can hold both your healing and theirs at the same time. And so for you to be able to do that in those moments so many years ago, I think this is a perfect segue 
to the final portion of the conversation that I wanted to talk to you about, which was the calling in culture. Because I would argue with you, or I'd give you some pushback here, that that dream that Martin Luther King had, that you just so eloquently resurfaced for us, to see the work that you are doing in this moment, that is not a dream that died on that fateful day. It is a dream that lives on vibrantly so. And so I would love to give you the platform here to share the importance of the work that you're doing surrounding the calling in culture. Well, for me, it's a very practical, pragmatic thing to do. If we're going to build that human rights movement of Dr. King's dream, that means we need to, first of all, know about human rights. Secondly, create movements where everybody is, is included, not based on their identity, but based on their humanity. And nobody gets to vote on whether you're a human being or not, though there are some people who wish they could, <laughs> you know? And figure out how to have collaborative practices so that when you bring all this diverse set of people together, our differences don't split us apart again. Because that's where we're caught up in the call-out culture right now, uh, where we think that everybody has to be perfectly aligned with what we think, or by definition, they're doing something wrong. Yeah, because if you don't think like I think, what's wrong with you kind of thing? And that is not only so unnecessary, it's so counterproductive to have that binary kind of thinking when you're doing human rights-based work. I mean, I'm a part of the women's rights wing of the human rights movement, but I work in alliance with the Black Lives Matter movement as part of the civil rights wing of the human rights movement but I also care about climate justice. So I'm part of the environmental justice wing of the human rights movement. We are a movement with many different sectors and wings shared based on our dream that everybody has their human rights protected and respected. We have the shared dream, but we work on it in different ways. And even within each movement, we have different strategies, different perspectives and stuff. And so I quite frequently say, when many different people have many different thoughts, but they move in the same direction, that's a movement. But when many different people have one thought and they move in the same direction, that's a cult. And we are not building that human rights cult. So stop your cult-like practices of calling people out because they don't agree with you. They don't have the right word. They don't precisely think. And you define everything you don't like as harmful or toxic or manipulative or whatever. Get the F over yourself. Because you're building a cult of you. You're not part of the movement. Come back when you've grown the F up when you realize it's not about you and your ego and your woke competition. Because if you think you're in a woke competition, all that proves is how unwoke you really are. If you think your job is to go around and tone police, word police, 
call people out for what you think they're doing right because they're on their own learning curve and you on your own learning curve and you think you know it all and you got the right to call somebody out. The only thing I can say is you just proven how much more you need to grow, not them. Yeah, and people don't like hearing that message because we've learned, unfortunately, we think that the way to do social justice work is to call people out. Yeah, there are people we need to call out. I ain't got no problem calling out the Klan. I ain't got no problem calling out people who abuse their power over others, who punch down because they can't be held accountable. But most of our calling out is either punching down on more vulnerable people than us are punching sideways with the very allies we need to be working with. And they're ineffective and they're harming the movement. I'm watching organization after organization on the social justice spectrum implode because people are running away with their egos and their call out. And it's pissing me off because we're weakening ourselves while the fascists are laughing all the way to, to the power. Can't even hold them accountable for the coup they tried to commit against our government because we're too busy calling each other out. I mean, what? And so I'm passionate, not about the issues anymore because I still care about my issues, but I'm passionate about process right now. How can we learn to be a more effective pro-democratic force based on human rights and successfully defeat white supremacy and fascism. That is my, how I wanna spend the last third of my life figuring out and offering to people. Because how we do the work is as important as the work we do. And I'm really having a lot of fun with young people because young people, when they hear that there's an option to call people in, that you can seek accountability with people by calling them in instead of calling them out, they kind of like heave this huge sigh of relief. Because you mean I ain't got to walk around worrying about if the next word I say or the next tweet I say is gonna blow up my life? I say, no. And anybody who wants to use it to blow up your life, you, they need to check themselves. And here's some things you can say to them to help them grow in their journey, like you are growing in your, you know, you can give each other the space to grow, like people have given all of us. And so the young people love it when they say, oh my God, I don't have to be a permanent fight looking for a place to happen. And they get burnt out so quickly because maintaining that outrage all the time is exhausting. <laughs> you know, they, they're really tired of not being able to watch Twilight without doing a critical feminist analysis of it or whatever. You're afraid of wearing the wrong t-shirt in case that man gets called out and then you wore their t-shirt, that kind of thing. And so I teach this stuff online um, for $5 a lesson. My next and last class for this semester is Tuesday night. So you can get to my website if you want uh, to get that class. It's all about technique on Tuesday night from seven to nine Eastern time and LorettaJRoss.com if you wanna pay $5 and learn some technique that might change your life. That's our last class. It was a six class series, but Tuesday is the last one.
But these are not hard things to learn. I'm just bringing forth the wisdom of the ancestors. Like Reverend Lowry said, I'm teaching people how to turn to each other instead of on each other. I'm saying, okay, if somebody says this to you, take a deep breath. And this is some of the things you can say. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Tell me more. You don't have to agree with somebody to listen to them. But we think that because we disagree with something somebody says, that we're supposed to pounce. We're supposed to show up what we like and who we are and blah, blah, blah. And, and that's our ego talking. That's not our strategy talking. And, and I'm, I'm thinking we can do better. Matter of fact, I know we can do better. We have lessons from our past we can learn. And, and I know we have the hope of the future that we can participate in. And I really like the fact that young people are on the front line of learning calling in techniques because they are so tired. I mean, they're, they're the digital generation. And just like you can't learn good sex from watching pornography on the internet, you can't learn good social justice practices by just watching Twitter and TikTok. <laughs> you just can't do it that way. Uh, and, and so they are really happy to see that there's more to learn than what's available through their digital thumbs. And you know, one thing that I wanted to share as I was listening to is I love the fact that accountability has no color. I mean, ego is ego regardless of your race, regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of your creed. So the intentionality in which you are choosing to spend your time in the area and effort in which you're focusing, so much respect for that because I understand the strategy like you said, behind what you're sharing. I think to your comment about grace, when those nine parishioners were killed at Mother Emanuel Church in 2015, I think it was, in Charleston, Chris Singleton's mother was killed in that church. And Chris Singleton offered the best definition of grace I've ever heard. And he offered it despite the fact that this white supremacist had killed his mama. He said, most people think that forgiveness is weakness, but in fact, it's a way of reclaiming your dignity. It's a way to not let the people who harmed you have free rent in your heart and your head. It's a way of making sure that my memory of my mama is not scarred by what happened to her, but who she was. That's how I offer grace. And that's why I'm offering forgiveness to my mother's killer because of what it does for me, not what it does for him. That's important to remember. Forgiveness is what you do for yourself, not what you do for others. Calling in is what you do for yourself, not what you do for your others, so that you can walk through the world being the best person you can be. Because that's really the only thing you have control over, who you are. 
you don't have no magic power to actually change somebody else. But I find that when you offer people grace, forgiveness, love, and respect, it has all kinds of impacts on other people that are totally awesome to witness. I want to sneak in one last question because, you know, I got my mind is spinning right now, but I want to squeeze in one last question. Uh, and it actually comes from our CEO and founder, Bethany. And the question is, one of the hardest times to push back on call-out culture is when it's picking up speed and momentum in this very public way, which it has done recently. That's also the most important time to diffuse it. And so how do we as individuals show up to encourage calling in, especially when it matters the most? Well, in our trainings that I offer online, we talk about the different roles people can play in the call out, calling in culture. Some people are bystanders, some people are the harm doers, some people are the harm receivers, some people are the witnesses or the truth tellers and different things. And so you can actually explore what options work best for you in the emotional space you're in at the moment. You know, because you don't have an obligation to do anything, but you have a lot of choices you didn't know you had. And you can actually choose the role that fits you in that emotional moment. Sometimes you feel like Bennett, you don't want to be in it. Sometimes <laughs> you feel like, oh, this is derailing our group's agenda. I must be in it so I can remind people of our values and why we're together and, and, and keep things on track. Sometimes you just want to be the witness. You know, so-and-so said this was racist and so-and-so responded by defending themselves and we're going to work together to, to, to have a conversation about how to define racism as a group or something like that. And so there's so many different ways you can intervene and you get to particularize them based on where you are emotionally in that moment. Uh, there's no obligation, there's no right or wrong, uh, but it's a lot of fun learning how resilient and, 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 and how you can actually expand the possibilities of yourself. Because it's hard to be brave in conflict. It's hard to watch a train derail and feel so powerless to do anything about it. So just like at every other meeting, you create ground rules, for example, you can create calling in ground rules. You can say, when these buzzwords are used, this is what we're going to do. And today, I'm feeling pretty good, so I'm going to be the truth teller and I'll be the healer that helps people get over it. And I'll be the person that intervenes. I'll be the redirector. I mean, you, you can actually work on these things in advance and have them available so that you're not trying to make urgent decisions in a crisis moment, because generally that's your worst decision-making time <laughs> and stuff and so. I love the fact that we're creating a new art of doing human rights work, but it's based on old knowledge about from our ancestors and from those who've gone before us. But what they never dealt with, that we have to deal with, 
is social media. But we have to do it in a different way. Well, on behalf of our entire community, Loretta, I just want to say thank you so much for choosing to spend this past hour with us. This conversation has been deeply moving for more reasons than I can probably even internalize in this moment. And so I want to thank you. I want to celebrate you. If you have not seen her TED Talk, please go check out her TED Talk. Check out her website, LorettaJRoss.com. She also has a podcast, The Dread Feminist, which she hosts. And I feel nothing but privilege for being able to share this space with you. So thank you for honoring us with your wisdom. We wish you absolutely nothing but the best. All right. Bye-bye, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode in the Breakline Arena. We hope that you're walking away feeling a little inspired, a little bit moved, and feeling as if you learned something. I tell you what, if you enjoy what you heard today, we only need you to do one of three things. Hit that like button, hit that subscribe, and if it really touched your spirit, go on review and rate this episode. It would mean a lot to us. It helps us get the word out there. It helps us continue to share this great content. And most importantly, we just love to hear what, you, what you'd have to say about some of the content that we're putting out there. So please join us again here in the Breakline Arena. Once again, my name is Kenny Vaughn, and I am signing out from the Breakline HQ with my partner in crime. Sophia Bodwin, we will see you next week.